0: Actually, you can. We'll start in start in chapter three. We're gonna clean up a little bit from where we were before and move our way into chapter four. But Colossians chapter three it was neat to one. It's just neat to hear you guys sharing in general. I appreciate very much as you share with us what you are learning. Um, it it just helps us to know and understand how God is working in each individual life. So thank you for doing that. And. Somebody shared on prayer, and thank you for doing that, uh, because we're going to be talking a lot tonight about prayer. I think Selena read a, a section from, from the, that Habits of Grace and how important a habit prayer is. So, Colossians chapter 3, uh, beginning in verse 22, because that's really, that's where we left off a couple of weeks ago, and then we're going to work our way through chapter 4, verse 6. So, verse 22 of chapter 3, yeah, if everybody, yeah, get, get your Bibles open, that will be helpful. You can, you can follow along. To slaves in all things obey those who, who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong that he has done and that without partiality masters chapter 4 verse 1 masters grant to your slaves justice and fairness knowing that you too have a master in heaven devote yourselves to prayer keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving praying at the same time for us as well that god will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of christ for which also i've been in prison that i may make it clear in the way that i ought to speak conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders making the most of the opportunity but your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. And early this morning we'll be working, evening, we'll be working our way through the kind of the final exhortation that the, uh, the Apostle Paul gives. He, in chapter 3, remember, in, in verse 18, he really transitioned to the practical outflowing in relationship of what happens when the Word of Christ richly dwells within you, which is another way of saying that you are being filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5, 18 says, be filled with the Spirit. Colossians 3, 16 says, You're let, to let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And when the word of God, by the power of the Spirit of God who indwells you, and when he uses that word to, to transform your heart, he then continues to use it to strengthen you and to bring about your sanctification or your growth in Christ. And when that happens, every one of your relationships changes. We as Christians, we're, and, and all, be, all, all people, we're relational beings. Our, our lives are really defined in relationship. And if the exaltation, if you are not exalting Christ in your relationships, guys, you're missing the whole point. That is, you really can't know Christ and be exalting Him if your relationships don't change, every one of them. So essentially, really, so as we start in verse 18 with wives and then husbands, children, fathers, slaves, and masters, if you're looking, whatever role you play in there, right, currently, some of you fill all those roles, right? Uh, but for now, for, for you, you know, children, uh, that's where you guys fit in, really, Any remember anyone underneath or still in your parents' household, underneath their authority, being supported by them. Slaves, that's you, that is you are under authority as those who work, right? So so those things particularly applying to you, uh, and then as you grow all those other relationships, you guys... Exalting Christ means living out truth in those things, and those become litmus tests for whether or not you're really a believer. Remember, all the time we're working our way through this, we're, as believers, we're exalting Christ and we're looking to see how we are doing these things and growing in them, but also we're testing to see, and particularly at this, at this time in your life, you're, you're testing, you're looking into the Scriptures to say, is, is, is the reality of my relationship with Christ real? I've heard it growing up, I've maybe made a profession of faith, but is it flowing out in truth in my relationships? And that's where you're going to see it most clearly. And that's where other people will see it as well. It's hard to fool people in relationship, right? Your siblings and your parents, all right, they know pretty much whether or not you are a believer, or at least they certainly have a, a much better idea than everyone else. And sometimes even you get confused because, you know, like, I'm just not sure. Well, again, the way this flows out in relationship is one of the primary understandings of that. And, and what you need to understand is that your work ethic or, or your relationship in work, which again, is what we talked about two weeks ago, those slaves, essentially for us employees, those who work for others, one of the primary ways that your Christianity shows up is in how you work. And, and that applies to you certainly at home, right? Because although you are not an employee at home, nobody's paying you, right? At least I don't think you're getting paid to do your schoolwork. Is anybody here getting paid to do your schoolwork? No, probably not. All right, so, but you are still working. The way that you work is a primary way of, of exhibiting whether or not you know Christ. And, and sometimes people don't track it through that way. They're like, well, I work poorly or I, I'm not going to do my work well. Please understand that anytime time you do your work with less than full effort as unto Christ, your faith is weakened because you are supposed to be exercising by faith the full-hearted participation in work. And so you might you might wonder, well, why, is, why am I wrestling in my faith? Or why am I unsure if I'm a Christian? Or, or why is my faith growing weaker? You may find that one of the primary reasons that's true is because you're refusing to work as unto the Lord. It is a work of faith, you are working to, for, for him. So again, just one illustration of the many involving relationships and how that reflects the worthiness of Christ. And so I'm going to just finish up really with verse 25, give one statement, a couple statements about chapter 4 verse 1, and really what I want to talk about tonight is evangelism. But remember, even in your, in your home, your work ethic, or if you're out in the workplace, and if, if you are as you're interacting in a relationship, that is a means of evangelism as we will see. But here are my questions for you as, as we start off tonight. What are some of the things that identify you as a Christian to others. So if you're thinking about your own life and you're trying to know how are people going to know if I am a Christian, what are some of the things that they're going to notice about you that might indicate that you're a Christian when you're out and about? Yes. All right. So they hear you talking about Christ. All right. Re- regularly, or at least some. All right. Yes. Yes, yeah, so you'll, you'll be a thankful person. You ought to be, right? And certainly, thankful Christ should come up in that. But you should be tremendously thankful. Good. So your thankfulness, your speaking about Christ, okay, your love for others, okay, that will be one indicator. That's a primary indication of whether you're a believer. What else? What other things are the people gonna are people gonna notice in you? Sure, the, the, both the humor and the language, and the Bible speaks to those things in many ways. The kinds of things we talk about, not only are we talking about Christ, but also then when we're not, how are we reflecting Christ in our speech, Josh? We'll try to bring, like, into yeah, it'll be your intent, right, to try, to try to draw them around. People will notice that, that Christ keeps coming up. Anything else? Yeah. All right, yeah, how, how respectful you are of others, respectful you are of authority, because all these things are different than the world. Anything else that people are going to notice about you? Yes? Okay. Uh, certainly working hard. Now, unbelievers, you know, can talk nice up front and, and, and work hard. But, again, ultimately what you'll find is that those things are, are shallow. They're hollow. For believers, people look at that and they say, oh, that's real. That's who you really are. Anything else that will show up if people are looking for you? All right. Now, this is this is a pretty similar question, but are there any other things? So when you're trying to determine if someone is a Christian, maybe you're at the work in the workplace, or uh, not so much evaluating other people's salvation as to you know I'm going to do this checklist. As, but what are what are the things you notice about them that you are, that you use to determine if they're actually believers? Again, pr- probably similar, but Brian, sure. How how they think about the world, right? And how they talk about the things that they do. Yeah, I mean that's that's a huge deal. What else? Anything else that you'd add to that list? Okay, yeah, things they don't do. You're kind of looking to see, okay, why, you know, why don't you do that? Good? Yes. Yeah, general attitude is a huge indicator, right? You're with someone a lot, and they seem to be upbeat, and they seem, you know, like, I wonder if that person's a Christian, right? Doesn't that sometimes cross your mind? Yes. Sure right how they deal when other people are talking to them or ha- if if you hear gossip coming out of their mouth as as we said last week that's a huge indicator of of whether or not a heart has been transformed because of how much we love gossip just what they like yeah you're just lo- you're looking at their life and you're observing you know do they love things that whatever is true honorable right pure lovely or do they love dark things and, and and things that are just on the edge things that are not not pure and lovely good those are those are things that we notice anything else yes so, uh, the use, their use of speech in just so many different ways is you're constantly catching clues about who they are. Anything else? Things that, markers you notice? How they treat sure. So, you're watching to see. Well, and again, it's one of those things that you don't even have to be watching all that much. Those are the things that you just notice, right? How they treat you, how they treat other people, All right, Good. All these guys are, are bound up in our actions as relates to whether or not we are giving a proper example for Christ now that's kind of the maybe the 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 non-verbal means of sharing although again included in there are things like you know do we talk about christ do we bring conversations around to christ now in in either of these ways either acting like a christian or speaking like a christian what are the things that make it hard for you to let people know you're a christian Right, so what? What are the things that get in the way? The barriers that keep you from being a greater example for Christ? Let me put it that way. What are the barriers? What makes it hard? If you tell how you're a believer, don't you're okay, sometimes it can be that if you're overtly a Christian, they're like, I don't want, you know, I, I'm not, I don't want to, I don't want to stay with you because there's certain things I cannot do and cannot say. What else? What makes it hard for you to want to share or maybe want to act like a Christian? Yeah, you might be rejected, right? Not only not friends with you, but, but maybe just, look, you know, a, a, a kind of a verbal reprimand. What's, what, why are you like that? What are you doing? Again, what else? Yeah? Sure, that can happen, right? They're talking behind your back, and you know, oh, that person's a Christian. Anything else that makes it hard for you, difficult for you to act like or speak like a Christian? I'll come back to you. Think on it. Okay, <laughs> it's like that. No, that's not true. All right. Anything else? What makes it hard? Uh, all the way back. Okay. Right. You can get totally left out of the conversation or, oh, because you don't you don't know about the stuff that's going on. You don't know the things they know. Yeah. They sure. It's in the back of your mind is if I raise this, how am I going to be viewed? Even if they never say anything. Right. That's a huge issue for us. I think. Rob. Yeah. Maybe we won't be able to to answer their questions if they have questions or, or step them through things. Good. Anything else that makes it hard for you? Yeah. Yeah. I might not be able to just, even as you're getting it presented, even if you think you know it, you might not get it out right. Anything else? Good. All right. Guys, there are a myriad of things that keep us from sharing our faith, right? And there are a myriad of things that keep us from living our faith. We're going to talk about some of those things tonight. Certainly, the pressure and, and, and essentially what you guys were saying is this, but the pressure to conform to the world, it's just, it's tr- it's huge, it's like a pressure cooker. And so you walk in, anytime you're with unbelievers, there's just this, it's unstated, but there's just this pressure, look, act like us, be like us, don't rock the boat, and that uh, tends to appeal to your own desires, not to want to look different, not to stand out, to be accepted. And then if you have other desires, things that you want to accomplish or things that aren't biblical, that just, it kind of presses you towards that mold, and the sin that is in you tends to come out. I feel like a sponge. Anytime you are in a cultural pressure situation, you get squeezed, and the sin inside starts to leak out. Now, that can be good from the standpoint of you begin to realize it and see it and deal with it. If you just always live in an environment where everything is easy, there's no pressure, there's no wrestle, well, it's pretty easy to think you're a pretty good Christian, and you're doing pretty well, and, man, I, you know, I've got this down. And then maybe you start getting pressed by the world, and things start coming out all right? So you can start confessing, you can start working your way through that. So as we talk about this lesson this morning, as we work our evening, again, as we work our way through this, I guess I want to be on Sunday morning, but as we work our way through it, I want you to be thinking through, all right, how is it in, in, in my own life that, that I speak and live for Christ and what keeps me from doing that? Now, just to finish up from, from two weeks ago, I just want to remind you of verse 25. Remember I said there, there's a reward for living for Christ, right that is that you grow in character you grow in strength there is an eternal reward that you partake of and so there's tremendous benefit for working as unto the lord but i do want to remind you before i move on that verse 25 says there is a consequence for not working as unto the lord so when you don't do what you're supposed to do or you do things at work that are wrong you will receive the consequences of that and if you've been in a work situation where you've done something wrong maybe you were late Maybe you didn't do what you were supposed to do, you got reprimanded, all right? You received the consequences of the wrong that you have done, and that's right and good. And one of Paul's main points here is that he says, look, that is without partiality. You can't say, well, you know, look, I, I was a slave, so, so I, you know, I didn't have to work hard, I didn't have to do those things because I was in a really bad situation, or, you know, it, that was just really hard. I had a really bad boss, and so therefore I could disobey. This is a very, it's a very strong verse, verse 25, which it says, look, God, God, both your employer and the Lord God who oversees is not going to give you a free pass because things were difficult for you. In fact, the most difficult situation of a slave, he says, look, you are required to live and to act and to work with the fullness of your heart, with full integrity, doing all that you are asked to do. Guys, don't make excuses for yourselves. And when you receive the punishment that happens, when you do not work wisely and well, your parents find out that you hadn't been doing your tests or doing your stuff, and they come down on you, do not whine about that. Do not make excuses about how you couldn't do this or how you couldn't do that. The, The Lord says, look, you are supposed, I told you how to do this, and if you are a Christian, I gave you the strength to do this. See, there's where the world gets this wrong. They're like, well, if you are in a difficult situation, then you have an excuse for doing what is wrong because it's hard to do what's right, right? What God says is, I empower you in those situations to do what is right, and that's what shows if you're a Christian, that you actually have the strength in the greatest of difficulties to do what's right. When, when your parents are difficult, when your employers are really hard to deal with, when, when, there's a, when you're in a, a situation that's oppressive and difficult. No, believers... Have the ability to do what's right. And when you do what's wrong, don't make any excuses. God is not buying it. Your parents are not buying it, right? They're like, uh uh-uh, that was wrong. You did what was wrong, and here's the consequence, right? It's the same with the Lord. I just want you to, to remind you that you the benefit, the, the blessing, and the reward is tremendous for honoring the Lord. But there's also a consequence, there's a penalty for disobeying. There's a penalty for disobeying the Lord. A penalty for disobeying others. So I want, you to, I want to remind you of that. So that's kind of the negative side, and yet, what? You have the strength to do what's right. Now, moving to chapter 4, verse 1. This is not, we're not on your outline yet. It says, Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Just two things I want, want you to notice there. Most of you are not masters. I, I know you think you are. All right? So if you're the older brother or sister at home, you're like, I am the master, I am the master. You know, you are, and you are the learner. No, guys, you are not. You don't have a bunch of little Padawans running around, you know, your brothers and sisters, and you can tell them what to do. I, again, you know, what they'll say back to you, you're not the boss of me, It's what you used to say, all right, when they try to tell you what to do. So guys, you're not masters yet, but when you are, and maybe this would apply for some of you, your parents leave and they say, look, you are in charge of the home for a certain period of time, all right? Maybe you should recognize this. It says, grant to your slaves, you don't have slaves, but grant to your siblings or whatever, Justice and fairness. It really is fascinating here. We're, again, we're not going to flesh it out tonight, but the, the, the masters always think what? The slaves ought to be giving to them. Notice the language. Masters, give to your slaves, right? So if you actually act like a true biblical master, you aren't going to harm or abuse or do anything unfairly to your slaves. You're going to give to them what? The, one, the two things they really need, justice and fairness, because that's who God is. And you need to think about that Anytime time you have any responsibility or any authority in any situation, you are called to give. All masters are also servants. All those who receive are also those who give, and you are called to give out justice and fairness. You may not make excuses for being angry, for being bitter, for being vindictive, for taking your own frustrations out on someone else, ever. So just as the slaves were called to obey to give back to their masters as it were, full-hearted service, because they're giving that to the Lord, so these masters are called to give justice and fairness. Because look at that last, those last four words. All right, you two have a master in heaven. What's the implication? If you don't give justice and fairness as a master, that master is coming for you. You are not the boss. He is the boss of you, and you had best do what you're supposed to do when you're in charge of things, or that master is coming for you. God always gives justice and fairness, always. in Again, in the eternal scheme of things, things will always end up being truly just and fair, even if in this life you were taken advantage of. The eternal scales, hear me carefully, will always balance. No one will get away with any sin ever. Either it will be covered underneath the blood of Christ and the sacrifice made, or they will be punished for it for all of eternity. There is no sin that goes undealt with. So that should be encouraging to you, but also should cause you to be the best possible person when you are overseeing a project. And and guys, that does happen sometimes, for example, in a mini sense at home or here in the youth group when you are given something to do. You don't walk around bossing people around and lording it over them about what you get to do. You grant to them justice and fairness. You give to them what the very best thing it is that they need as a master, knowing what? That you have a master in heaven. So you serve as one who has a master in heaven, and you are a master as one who has a master in heaven. All this is underneath the Lord. All right. So all that is just wrapping up where we were. Now, notice that right after he says, kind of he works through all those relationships, there's this powerful command which kind of serves as a bridge to his final exhortation, the things that he wants to say, and and it is... I don't think there's any accident that he ends, really, in his final exhortations to the Colossians with this command, which is, devote yourselves to prayer. So uh, on your outline here, as you consider the nature of of evangelism, really, we're going to see that this prayer comes in terms of evangelizing others, but really in our lives as a whole, and particularly as it relates to sharing our faith, because we must be devoted to prayer. Because prayer is the, really the core at which everything begins. When you pray, you are acknowledging your, your neediness. You are acknowledging, you're humbling yourself before the Lord. You're crying out to Him for the resources that you need. To lack in prayer is really to lack everywhere. And, and, and yet, if I were to press down into your prayer life, if I had to guess, for some of you, it's something that you just really don't do much at all. Now, you just don't think about it much. It's not, but if you don't, you need to ask yourself why, All right. So if prayer is just not much of anything for you, not, not long times of prayer, not daily prayer kind of all the time, none of that, you need to ask yourself why. Does it mean you don't have a relationship with the Lord? Does it mean you don't, you're not interested in that relationship? Does it mean you think you don't need His strength daily? So you're going to have to process that. Now, that's probably not most of you, though. Most of you would probably tell me that, hey, I, I pray a fair amount. And I think what you would probably mean by that is that you regularly are talking to the Lord, right? You're moving through your day, and you're like, Lord, help me with this, and Lord, help me with that, and Lord, I'm not sure what to do about that. That's probably many of you, right? And that's delightful if that's true, that's a wonderful place to be as a Christian where you are constantly talking to the Lord. But, but, what you need to understand is that is not exactly what is being talked about here, right? That's part of what's being talked about, but it's not the totality. When Paul says here, devote yourself to prayer, so this is the pattern of prayer. This idea of a continual devotion, all right, to be devout is to be wholeheartedly engaged in. It's very similar to what he's just been saying about if you're a servant, you serve well with a whole heart. If you're a master, you you grant justice and fairness with all that you are. If you are a Christian, you devote yourselves to prayer. You pour yourself earnestly into this business of communicating with God because that's what prayer is. Very simply, prayer is talking to, communicating with God, and you are devoted to that. It's not a a kind of a secondary issue, something you kind of get out of the way, or even something that is almost casual as you go throughout your day. There's more to it than that. There's this idea of being wholeheartedly engaged in communication with God, you speaking to Him. And so that means it is more than just daily kind of ongoing prayer. It means that you will have time set aside where you are pouring your heart out to the Lord. Jesus modeled this continually. He would get up, disciples would get up in the morning, they'd be like, where's Jesus? And He was out praying. He was was up far before them and He was seeking the Lord in prayer. He was God. He was the God-man. And there he was starting his day earnestly in prayer when he had a decision to make about the disciples that says he prayed all night. Well, what was he saying? Right? So Jesus sets the model for more than just daily prayer, which he certainly did, constantly in communication with his Father, but there was this devotedness, this earnestness that he set aside time to pour out his heart to God, to speak to his Father. Why? Because he loved his Father. Because he had a real, deep, intimate relationship. That's, why, that's what drives prayer. Because if you have to keep dredging prayer up, it just, it just never quite comes. You might wonder, do do I really know this God that I am supposed to be communicating with? I mean, when you really love someone, do you wrestle to talk with them? Now, again, that can be true, right? There are times when it can be hard to talk to people that you love. I get that. But you really are, if you're consumed with them, if you just are thinking about them, do you talk to them? Certainly you do. So this idea of being devoted is to to give yourself wholeheartedly to. Your inner man, mind, will, affections that you are pouring that out in prayer and guys that can't just be casual and, and it's not just a, a minute or two here or there. It is something you need to learn how to devote yourself to so that you might walk carefully with God. Acts 242 this was a this was a primary evidence of the early church's true conversion, those in the early church. right after Peter preaches his first sermon, uh, 5,000 people come to Christ. Says they were continually devoting themselves—that is, giving so themselves wholeheartedly—to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Right? Now, again, I just want you to think about the kinds of things you are devoted to. I mean, let me ask that question. If if you, if you think about man, it's things that you really give yourself wholeheartedly to, what are some of those things? What what would what would maybe your parents or someone else say you are devoted to? What do you give all your energy towards? Tell me out. Yeah. Swimming, right? Takes a lot of time, gives a lot of, you know, you give a lot of energy, you love it, right? Devoted. What else? Sleeping. <laughs> you can be devoted to sleeping, I think, so it's like, on, a lot of wholehearted energy just snoozing away, all right? What are you devoted to? Art. What's that? Art. Heart? So you have a devoted heart, is that, is that what you're saying? Art. Art, sorry, not art, but heart. Devoted to your art. Thank you, sorry about that. So something that you love, right? They see you doing it a lot. Right? So something you're 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 engaged in. What else? Yeah. Cool. School. Right? And doing a lot of it, I'm sure. They're a lot, hopefully also wholeheartedly, passionately involved in. Tristan. Saving money for a computer. Saving money. So they see you squirreling it away and sticking it over here and like okay, so right, you're devoted to that, yeah. Basketball. Basketball, right? Hey, I'm, I'm all about that. You know, you shoot some hoops it, 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 it's more than that, right? Constant thinking about it. Hey, March Madness is coming up, by the way. It's like the world's greatest time. I hate professional, hate. I dislike professional basketball with a passion. I love March Madness. I got the app. I'm looking at the things, right? Uh anyway, how do I get it? Oh basketball? Yes. I'm not devoted to basketball maybe, but I do I do like this period of time. Judah. Yeah, books. So I mean your nose is in the book, right? All the time to see it there. Levi. Frisbee, all right, yeah, so talk frisbee, walk frisbee, carry your frisbee, right? I mean, again, I know, I realize that, yes? Playing violin. Playing violin, all right, so they hear from your room, Your know, guy's there, and they don't have to come and tell you, look, oh, play your violin, because you're already doing it, because if you're devoted to something, do you have another one? Swimming, all right, again, so a- engaged, active, because that ought to be the way we are with our Christian life, and it ought to be the way we are with prayer. Would someone say that you're devoted to prayer? Could you say that if someone that knows you intimately, because you shouldn't be walking around, I'm so devoted to prayer, you know, all chanting. I I get that. You don't want everybody knowing because then there's a problem. But if people that were closest to you, if they, do they realize, do you talk about prayer and consider and, and draw them into prayer? So guys, this devoted to prayer is a huge issue for Christians because we long to communicate with the Lord. It's this fascinating thing that that, uh, Samuel says. He he was the last judge of Israel, remember? Uh, He grew up under Eli. He was really the only one through whom the Lord was speaking during that time. And he was the transition from the time of the judges to the time of the kings, a godly man, a man who loved the Lord. And this is what he said to the people right before he was turning them over to a new king. They had really rejected him. They said, no, we don't want you. One of the reasons was that his sons didn't walk with the Lord, so there was no transition there. He says this to them, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. But I will instruct you in the good and right way. Imagine, he says, look, if I stopped praying for you, even though you've rejected me, they, really, they'd say, we don't want you as a leader, we're done. And he'd he loved them and cared for them and poured out his life for them. He goes, look, I'm not going to sin by ceasing to pray for you. I wonder, you guys, for those in your life if maybe one of your areas of sin is that you are not praying for those that are, that are in your sphere of influence, your siblings, your parents. I mean, how many times do you actually sit down and, and, and spend deep time in prayer for your parents? And you wonder maybe why they struggle and maybe why they don't understand you as well as you'd like. And, and well, maybe you ought to be praying for them. Maybe I would be crying out to the Lord that they, they would be able to work through their, you know, the difficult aspects of their lives and that the Lord would bless them and strengthen them. Your siblings, same way. Well, they don't like me and they don't talk to me much and they're rebellious. Well, maybe it's because part of the reason is you're not praying for them. Again, I understand that God's in control of these things. It's not some kind of guilt trip, man, you better pray more, or everything around you will. But there is a sense in which the Lord uses, there's not a sense, well, the Lord uses your prayers to accomplish His purposes. He says that, we'll talk about that more. So guys, maybe things around you are not happening for the very reason that you're not praying. I understand that you might be praying deeply and something doesn't happen, right? Prayer isn't a guarantee that something will immediately follow. But I tell you this, not praying is one of the best ways to guarantee that something will not happen, right? So please don't, don't it's not some kind of magic pill, but it is the means by which we cry out to the Lord for the things that are most meaningful to us, you know, some of you, well, you all, struggle with patterns of sin in one way or another. Maybe it's a pattern of lust. Maybe it's gossip. Maybe it's it's laziness. I don't know. How much time do you devote to pouring out your heart to the Lord saying, Lord, help me not to sin in this way. Give me insight. and then And then you seek after the things which will help you in that. You will find, if you would devote yourself to praying towards the very areas in which you sin and then put into practice the things that the Lord, you know, indicates through His Word and through others, that you will overcome those sins. Again, it's not not automatic, it's not tomorrow, but you will be able to walk your way through those things. as this kind of diligence is commanded by Christ. In Luke 18, go ahead and turn there. So let's uh, do an exercise of actually moving our, the pages in our Bible or swiping, however it may be swipe or no swiping, Uh, Luke 18, you may swipe at this point, probably half of you don't even know what that is, because you're now too, that's too far long ago, but uh, Luke 18, Jesus gives a parable on prayer, and it's powerful, so Luke 18, you're familiar with this, I think, Okay, 18, now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. So don't, don't lose sight of that. There's one point to this parable. There's all kinds of cool stuff about the parable, about, you know, the, the, the judge and the widow and all these things. But there's only one point. Pray all the time and don't lose heart because God desires to answer you. Right? But, but notice, always pray, don't lose heart. What's that idea? don't stop being devoted. Don't stop giving your whole heart to this. It's like, you know, you're, you're playing a basketball game that you're devoted to, and all of a sudden you're getting trounced by 50 points. What happens? You start losing heart. <laughs> you're like, I, I, all the energy is out of this. You guys, with prayer it can be that. We've been praying for a long time, and we're like, maybe the Lord isn't hearing me. So you lose heart. He's saying no, don't. Be devoted. Stay devoted to prayer. And, and he's going to tell them why. He says, I was a widow uh, verse two, saying, In a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and he did not respect man. He was a, a bad a bad place to be, <laughs> not fearing God and not respecting men. By the way, that's more and more all the judges that are in, our, are in our land. Unfortunately, there are still some good ones, some godly ones, but it's rare. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, "Give me legal protection from my opponent." We don't know what was going on. Someone was coming after her. She was a widow with no husband to protect her. That was was, was necessary in that time. She had no legal rights as a woman, essentially. All right, so she's coming, badgering this judge. Look, give me protection. Right, she's trying to get, trying to use the legal system. So she's not taken advantage of. He says, verse four: For a while he was unwilling, for a while he was unwilling. What does it indicate? She keeps on coming, but afterwards he said to himself, "I love this one." God kind of reveals what you know. These are these are made up characters because Jesus is making up this story. But we get a picture into his heart. He, he says to himself, "Self." doesn't say self here, but even though I do not fear God or respect man, (laughs) he's kind of reviews who he actually is, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection, otherwise by continually coming, she will wear me out, so she's all the time, on the phone, texting, everywhere, It's like, give me protection, and finally he goes, look, I don't care about you, I don't care about your mother, or your sister, or your brother, I don't care about any of this, I care about my sanity, you're going to drive me crazy, okay, you got legal protection, right, Now, that's not a great reason to give it, right? But look, what, look at, the, look at the, draw, what he draws out the point of the parable. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, now, will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night, and will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Again, the, the point of the parable is not that, not, Jesus, not that God is like the unjust judge and you have to badger him. It is that he is the exact opposite of the unjust judge. He longs to give. He loves to answer your prayers. So that should draw you even more into prayer. Isn't that because he loves to answer, you then refuse to talk? Why does that make any sense? If you, if you knew that if you just asked someone for something, they would give it to you, would you ask them if it was something you wanted Of course you would. If you knew it to be true, right, that someone was generous and loved to give, would you ask? And the answer is, of course you would, if it's what you wanted. You wouldn't go, well, that person is very generous and they love to give me what I want, so I'm not going to ask them. You you just would not do that, but that's the idea, because God is generous. He loves to give. We don't think of Him that way. We think He's stingy at times. We think He doesn't really want to answer. And I think sometimes we think that because we've prayed and God hasn't answered, or it hasn't doesn't seem to have answered us, But you guys, God is always answering. But what's he sometimes saying? No. My purposes are different. So you've got to trust him in that. So I understand that sometimes it's like, all right, I don't think God gives much because he hasn't answered my particular prayers. But if you think about your life and you consider, you know, the things in your life and the people in your life and the, and the, and the, the things God has placed there, you will see that he has answered hundreds if not thousands of your prayers. Your prayers for food, day and night. I mean, you take that for granted. There are people now who can't eat. We have prayers from the, from the Ukraine coming, uh, you know, leaders of the churches there where they're trying to gather together to be protected from being, you know, the, the shells that are landing in the city and they're running out of food. I mean, take it for granted that you eat. God has answered that prayer. How many times, I don't answer this, but how many times have you asked God to, to provide food for you or thanked Him for the food that He gave? Like three times a day since you were one year old? Has God answered that every time? He has. Should you take that for granted? You shouldn't. You didn't do that. God provided it and He could have taken it at any time. Life, breath, health, clothing—all those, all those external things. And how about your salvation? Has He taken that away? No. Has He granted you that? Yes. Has He given you spiritual blessings? Has He given you His Word? Has He given you the Church? How many prayers has He answered? Hundreds, thousands. And yet there are some, some where He's answered and He said, "No," or He said, "What? Wait, it's not the right time." Because don't don't give up because God hasn't answered. Don't think that he is like the unjust judge because he hasn't answered. That would cause you to give up ultimately. But what Jesus is saying is, look, don't ever think that he's not like that. And if he doesn't answer you right away, it's because he has other purposes, but he desires to answer. So keep praying. You're wrestling with a sin that hasn't gone away? Keep praying. Keep wrestling. Keep pressing in. He longs and he delights in giving you what you need. So there's this continual devotion. Also, there's a continual alertness. It says keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, right? To to be alert is to be active. to Kind of two ideas, to be prepared, that's to be able to pray things that are biblical, and also to know the things that you ought to be praying for. It's not so much don't fall asleep while you are praying, but you guys, that's part of it. If every time you go to pray, you're like snoozing, well, that's not alertness. And actually, that's one of the, in Scripture, when Jesus goes to pray in the garden and He leaves the disciples to pray on their own, what do they do? They go to sleep, and he says, "Wake up, be alert." So they literally fell asleep, but it's more than that. That was just an indication of what. If you are sleeping, certainly you are not asking the Lord for what you need. But alertness goes beyond just being awake. It means knowing what you ought to pray for, and how do you know what you ought to pray for? The Scripture tells you. And one of the things we try to do in small groups, and I know that your parents do around around the table, is we're trying to teach you how to pray. Because it starts off, you know, when, when people are in kingdom kids, and sometimes when they move in in, in sixth or seventh grade, they're like, you know, pray for that, that we will win our game. And I go, like, well, why should we pray for that? So your ego can get big? Right? Well, why would we pray to win your game? Maybe we might pray that you would have a godly example. And hopefully your leaders aren't going to slam you. We don't pray for games. Maybe they will say, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe we should pray that you would have a good, good example, that, that, you would, that you would do your best right? And, and, and then your every other prayer is what is for an animal or for, for some physical thing. And they'll say, you know, it's good to pray for animals. That's fine. But let's think about things that we can pray for people that have to do with their spiritual welfare. So they're training you, they're teaching you. That's part of being alert in prayer. Man, you look out there at the world and even what the Christian world prays for, and sometimes you're like, I mean, the way they pray, demanding things from God or praying for things that are just ridiculous, you know, that's not alertness in prayer. That's foolishness. We need to know how to pray biblically, and so we need to know the Bible deeply. Because we model that on Sunday morning when, when the elders are praying or when the other men in the church pray. They're trying to model for you the kinds of things that you ought to pray for, the spiritual and physical requests that we, we lift up before the Lord. Because you need to be alert. You need to know what is going on that you should be praying for. Think we ought to be praying for Ukraine? Sure. Right, but simply that, that it would, they would, you know, the shelling would stop or the Russians would go away? No, that they would be spiritually strong in the midst of that. Do you think we ought to be praying for the, those in Russia who had nothing to do with the war and who also are receiving some of the full, full brunt of all that will happen? Yeah, we ought to be. So that's alertness, knowing what's going on. But think about your own life, praying for your sins, praying for your opportunities, praying for what you know to be around you. Because this alertness has to do with knowing what to pray for, right, both circumstantially and things that are happening, but then how to pray for it biblically. Biblically. First Peter 4, 7, very powerful verse. It says, the end of all things is near. Is it? Yeah, the Lord could come at any time. The end of all things is not near because you have a test tomorrow, right? The end of all things is not near because Russia invaded Ukraine, right? The end of all things is near because Jesus went to be back with the Father and He could come back at any time. So what ought you to do, 1 Peter 4 7 says, the end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment. This be able to think about things wisely, be discerning, be wise, be of sound judgment and sober spirit. That is alert, aware of what's going on, not drunk in your own pleasures, not totally overwhelmed by your own desires, be of sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. That's what the verse says, 1 Peter 4 7. Sound judgment, sober spirit, so you can pray well. You might be thinking, well, God knows what's going on. I mean, so why should I have to pray? The Bible actually says that. The Lord knows what you need before you even ask. So why should you pray? Because God commands you to, and because He says, I want you to partner with me in the work that I am doing. I'm allowing you this precious privilege of seeking me for the very things that I desire to do because I'm letting you partner with me to do that. Because I can't explain how that meshes perfectly with God's sovereignty, that He's going to get things done. <laughs> I mean, I just know that that's what He said, and I know it's a precious privilege for us, for, for myself and you, to be involved with Him in seeing those things actually done. What a blessing. Please never think that God the sovereignty means you sit and do nothing, and God just does stuff. God unto sovereignty means that His people, you and I, are actively involved in His work, and one of those things is prayer. Think about this. You're, you know, 12, 13, 14. Maybe you're 16 or 17. I mean, h- how much can you actually influence world events on, on your own? Just you. Okay, zero. You know, you're going to write a letter to the editor. Or you're going to say, stop that. And, uh, who cares, all right? You're going to call, call someone on the phone. You know, call Putin on the phone. Stop. <laughs> right? I mean, he doesn't care about you. But listen to me. Do you, can you, could you have an influence on world events from where you sit as a 12-year-old? You could start praying. Does God hear your prayer just as much as he hears some big, flutin', you know, John MacArthur prayer? Sorry, he's not big and flutin'. He's, he's a wonderful guy. But does he hear your prayers as much as he hears John MacArthur's prayers? Or mine? Or your parents? Or, you know, pick your, pick your Christian celebrity? Yep. You are just as influential on your knees as they are. Does that encourage you? I hope it encourages you to use this opportunity more. You can change this church. You can change this world as you pray, because God hears every prayer that you ever prayed. He is He is leaning His ear, as it were. He's extending His ear to hear you pray. And you might think, well, I'm having a really difficult time. I'm in a difficult situation. He hears your prayers even more. As the Scripture says, He hears the prayer of the oppressed. He hears the prayer of those who are downtrodden and who are wrestling. He hears you even more. Nothing can keep you from the ear of God. The only thing that Bars that or makes that difficult for the Christian is when you are in sin that you aren't admitting and then what is he saying look I'm hearing your prayers but I'm not going to do much about that until you confess there, there's something that, that needs to go on here right does he ignore you totally when you sin no because you're sinning a lot and he still loves you and still <laughs> enables you to, to get things done but you guys it's sort it's of like at home if you're sinning against your parents and refusing to respond to them guys they're still feeding you and they're still caring for you right and they let you come in at night and sleep in your bed. But is it a happy day at your home? No. Is anything positive really happening? No. And your parents will tell you that, right? You know, I'd love to be doing more for you. I'd love for us to be having a more joyful, encouraging time, but you are in sin and you are not responding, and so then we're not not moving forward here much. So guys, that can work with God as well, but understand that he always hears, and we can always pray, and he always will respond to us because he loves us. So then that leads to this third part, continual thanksgiving. Continual alertness through His Word and knowing what to pray for, but continual thanksgiving, always offering up to God thanks back to Him because why wouldn't you? All these things that He's given, all these blessings and benefits. You know, maybe try this, if we want to make this really practical, try this with your parents. The next time you go to ask for something, hey, Mom and Dad, can I go over to so-and-so's house? Or can I, would, Write a big, long list of stuff that they have let you do. And maybe you'll go first and say, Mom, you know, last week you let me do this, and last year you let me do this, and last year you let me do this, and I am so thankful. And mean, you, you fed me yesterday, and I really liked the food, and that was great, and I get to sleep in a bed, and, and you took me to church. I am so thankful. Thank you so much. And by the way, can I go to? <laughs> Not using it as a way to crowbar them, but simply to regulate. And by the way, yeah, don't always tie it with something you're asking for. But Just be thankful. Do you think they'd be a little more predisposed to give you stuff if they thought you were thankful for the stuff they'd given you? And they'd probably tell you that, right? If you were a little more thankful, maybe we would want to give you more. Right? That's, that's a truth. A joyful, delighted child will receive the greater benefit of their parents. Well, that's not fair of course it's fair. The delight the, the that you have and the thanksgiving that you have draws out the delighted, gracious response. Continual thanksgiving, you guys. I, I could ask you, what do you have to be thankful for? And, and I'm going to ask you that. What do you have to be thankful for? Come on, just quickly. Just give me one word, two words. What are you thankful for? Air. Air. Thank you. You need to breathe. Salvation. Salvation. Music. Music. Yeah, you can just call them out. It's fine. You have to raise your hand. It's fine. All right. We're, okay. What else? Food, fish, youth group, shelter. What's that? I missed that last one. Gravity. I'm thankful for that. Keeps us grounded. Anything else? Transportation, frisbees, coffee, sleep, clean water, drawing supplies, air conditioning, creation, the very things God has created, cars, me. I'm thankful for me too. Thank you, Tristan. <laughs> Salvation, eternal heaven, eternal. I'm sure you were going to say those things, I, you guys. I, I said say anything, right? So thank you for doing that. Because there's so many things. Could we have gone on and on and on? Because just think, just, just think about that. This continual Thanksgiving, and so you're thinking. You might be thinking, well, you know, Chris, I spent about five minutes in prayer, and I'm about done. That's all I got. Well, you could probably extend that by at least five more minutes if it always came with Thanksgiving. Because if you were a little more alert, your prayer would probably go up to ten minutes. You started praying for your family members and for stuff going on in the world and for missionaries that you know and for things that we brought up on Sunday and Wednesday night. That's already about ten minutes easy. And then if you started thanking the Lord a lot, man, you'd all of a sudden be at fifteen minutes and you might be at thirty. And you'd look up from your from your prayer time and be like, "What happened here?" That, that was amazing. I, I was alert. I was sober. I wasn't falling asleep. I knew what to pray for. I started thanking God. I was I was asking Him for the things that, that are so desperately needed. As a 12-year-old, you could be praying 30 minutes. So I'm saying, you know, you have to go do that. But I'm saying that might be a great way to begin to practice, to draw out this very thing. Because we need, we need to be devoted to prayer. What's the subject of prayer in this context? So, so that's just generally. And, and over and over in Scripture, it, it says that. But now, so he gives, I think, this general command. But then in verse 3, there's a it says praying, which means as you pray, pray this. So this verb praying fits underneath this bigger verb pray. So there's a command to pray, and it says here is a subset of that. Here's something you ought to be praying for. Pray all the time for everything. Also be praying for some speci- specific thing. This is what he says. Praying at the same time for us as well, that God may open up to us a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which also I've been imprisoned. He's saying, look, pray while you're praying for all these things, with thanksgiving, with alertness, devoted, also pray for opportunities for, for proclaiming the gospel. So, number two, the subject of prayer, A, opportunities for proclaiming the gospel. I think you have a little teeny blank there, so your opportunities will have to go up like this. Because if, oh, if I put it, give you a big blank, it would put down to the next level, and it would run my outline off the page. That's a long explanation you didn't need. Opportunities for proclaiming the gospel. He says that God will open up to us a door for the word. I think you've sometimes heard people say, you know, there's a, there was a door open, or every time God, you know, what, shuts a door, he opens a window, or some kind of weird things people say about doors, right? You've got to kick doors down and knock doors out. And it's like, you know, the, the primary way, if you do a study of doors in Scripture, You're going to find that almost always it relates to evangelism, almost 100% of the time, that a door, an opportunity, is not an opportunity for you to go get rich or an opportunity for you to do something, go to Disney World that you really want, pray that God would open up a door for me to, you know, go have fun. No, a door is almost always an opportunity to share the gospel. Do you think God wants to open those doors for you? I think so. Can you be sure that He wants to open up a door for you to go to college at the place you want? No, <laughs> he might not want you to go there. I oh, have no idea if he has a door open there. He might, and, I, and I'm not opposed to you praying that the Lord would give you opportunity. I get that, but most importantly, do you think He wants you to share the gospel? And He's got lots of opportunities that you should take advantage of. Yep, lots of doors. So start praying for each other. Paul says, "Look, I mean, He's the great apostle. I mean, He is the evangelist, and He's praying. Look, may God open up doors for the word." God will open up the door for the word. That's opportunities for proclaiming the gospel. And it's interesting, he's asking that, and where is he? Have you forgotten? He's in prison. (laughs) What kind of doors are in prison? The door to get out. Don't you think he probably should have prayed that God may open up to us the door of the prison, right? (laughs) Get us out of here. He never prays that. Now, in in Philippians he says, look, I'm, I'm praying that this might be for my release. So it's not like he didn't think about being released. But the big idea of the door is that even as he's sitting in prison, God will be opening up opportunities for he, Paul, right there in his prison to be sharing the gospel. You don't have to go somewhere else. We're going to take some missions trips this year, thankfully. I, I, I think you ought to be thinking about missions trips now that we're getting them back going. Some of you can't do it yet. You've got to reach you know, 16, 17. But you ought to be saving your money. You ought to be getting prepared because we're going to go over and share the gospel. But you guys, if you're not sharing the gospel right now, using the opportunities that you have, then there's not really much reason to go over to India or to go to Papua New Guinea or to go over to Egypt to share. You need to be sharing here. And that's what he says. He says, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ. That's the gospel. What Christ has done, who he is, the salvation he provides, The, the free gift of eternal life that he grants to those who repent and believe. It's a tremendous mystery that now God comes to live inside and he does so on the basis of his own grace. In presenting the truth of the gospel, it's an amazing mystery that thing that God reveals—not some, you know, some Agatha Christie or I guess probably don't even know who she is—some mystery writer of our day. Uh, you guys, it is something God has revealed to us that Christ is the Savior. That we, when we repent and believe, that we receive salvation in Him. He says, "Look," uh, uh, and this is fascinating. He goes, "Open up a door, so opportunity to proclaim the gospel, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I've been imprisoned." You're like. So the God would open up a door to do the thing that got the door slammed on me. I got shut up in prison because I was doing this. And you know what? I want to do it more. Even while him, I mean, they would get double slammed, We'd get into, you know, solitary confinement. Who knows what's going to happen? Because like, he says, pray for me that God would just keep and open up the doors. Even though it is that very thing that got me in prison. Remember we talked about the difficulties? You're afraid that maybe people will think badly about you. I get that. I feel the same way when I go to evangelize. That maybe people talk about you. I feel that way. Every fear you have, I fear it, and yet the Lord gives grace to press forward. Why? Because the opportunities are so important. Because look, it, it, Paul had more to fear than you. He was sitting in prison, and it might have gotten worse. And if he got out, he was going to preach again and might get put in prison again. And actually, he was. He got out of this prison, and a couple of years later, he got put back in another one and beheaded. All for sharing the gospel. Be careful what you pray for. Give me an opportunity to share the gospel. And I'd love to tell you, no, everything will be fine in the United States. And you won't have, you know, no one will ever actually be mad at you. And stop fearing that. I Couldn't tell the Apostle Paul that. Stop fearing you might get put in prison. I'm already in prison. Stop fearing that you might get killed for sharing your faith. He was, ultimately. So I'm not going to tell you that things aren't difficult. I'm just going to simply say, keep praying, as the Apostle Paul did, that you might be able to press through those difficulties, even though the dangers are there. Now, you're probably not going to get killed here for a while yet. In fact, the worst you're probably going to get is someone to grimace at you or gossip about you. But those are hard things. I get that. Because we need to pray. And the Apostle Paul, the greatest of all evangelists, is asking that they would pray for opportunities for him to share the gospel, that God would open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I've been imprisoned. But verse four is stunning. In order that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak, pray for me that I would be a good evangelist. So B here is clarity in proclaiming the gospel. So opportunity for proclaiming the gospel. But B is clarity in proclaiming the gospel. Pray that I would make it clear. What? Paul, to whom Jesus gave the gospel personally, Paul's not going to get it clear? He goes, look, pray for me that I would. So is it right and good that you would have someone else pray for you that you would get it right? Remember, one of the things that you guys mentioned as a difficulty to to evangelism is that you're afraid you might not get it right. So was the Apostle Paul. He said, look, pray that I would get it right. And why do you think the Apostle Paul got it right so much? Because people prayed for him. Do you think that the Colossians did this? I do. He asked the same of the Philippians that they would pray for him. Do you think they prayed for him, that he would be a great evangelist? I think they did. And so why do you think he was such a great evangelist? Because people prayed for him. not Because he was super Paul. He is telling them, look, I'm not super Paul. I'm not even sure I'd make it clear. I'm not even sure. He says, in the way I ought to speak. So that's the next one. Correctness in proclaiming. Clarity and correctness. Opportunities, clarity, and correctness in proclaiming the gospel. And Paul says, look, you need to pray for me that I would do that. And if he needed someone to pray for him, we probably need people to pray for us. Maybe one of the reasons we're not great evangelists is because no one is praying for us that we would be. Now, maybe they are, and you're just refusing (laughs) I understand that. Maybe your parents are praying for you. They probably are. Daily that you would share the gospel in your difficult circumstances or that you would share it to your brothers and sisters whom they know to be unbelievers around you. They're probably praying for you. Because wouldn't it be cool if we were all praying this prayer for one another that God would open up a door for opportunities to speak You think, well, I'm, I'm homeschooled. I don't get out much. I guess there's, there's ways to share the gospel. Man, with social media these days? How, maybe redesign your whole Instagram to share the gospel, redesign the whole thing. So instead of pretty me here and awesome me here and cool dude here, instead it was, you know, this is something Jesus has taught me and here's something else that I've learned and here's what my church does. Redesign the whole thing and then try to get as many followers as possible with that because as you do that, you're sharing. You think you, got, you, think you know, have no voice? I mean, the world has given you a voice. The social it's giving you a voice. I know I bash on it all the time because it's so easy to use it badly. Why not use it well? I'm just a homeschooler. I sit around at home and I don't talk to any unbelievers. Might be some in your family. Think about that. Maybe your younger siblings. Maybe you're older. Right? Oh, I just go to youth group all the time. You think there are no unbelievers here? I think there are probably some. Think you could share the gospel here? I think so. Do you forget to do that? Yes. Do you need opportunities? Well, they're here. Because there's lots of them, but you could create them, and and th- we live in a world where you can you can you can witness to people. Again, you could you can witness to people in China without going there. There's probably a lot of people in China reading your Instagram stuff, but that's a story for another day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? We have a lot of leaders out there that are you know trying to figure out what you little child are doing. I'd probably not, but so he says, I, w- I, I want to make it clear because you guys, God uses clear gospel presentations that we don't muddy it that's not all about you that's not all about you know cool stuff that people can get it's not all about them overcoming all of their giants and 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 overcoming all oppression and everything we find. because that's not the gospel it has to be correct you have to say it in the way that it needs to be said so let me just remind you of what that is this is as far as we'll get tonight but but stay with me what is clarity and correctness in the gospel because it really isn't that complex and it's something you should be going over and over. And at the church, we try to teach you to do this over and over. That the gospel begins with who? It begins with God. God is what? He is the creator. He is who? He's the creator and owner of everything. He built the world. He spoke it into existence. So he owns it all. And he owns you. And he owns every person in it. And that means that every person in the world is responsible to, to give back to God the worship that he deserves because he made them. He's the creator. He's holy. He's not only just the creator, he's also perfect. He never has sinned. He's above and transcends the universe. He's not part of it like the tree, the rock. He's not the force. He's transcendent over the universe because he created it, and therefore he desires all within it to be holy, and he created it holy. He's just. He never makes a wrong decision. He's never unfair, and everything must be perfectly just to be to be properly appreciated by God. He will not approve that which is not holy and just. And he's also loving. He loved the creatures that he made. He loved the world that he made. He said it was good. And he desires and engages in relationship with his people. So he's holy, just, and loving. The creator of the world, because there's a serious problem, isn't there? The problem is us, men. Men and women, we're we're sinful. What does that mean? We have violated God's command. We have not done what God has told us to do. We have fallen short of His glory. We're not perfect as He is. We have rebelled against Him. We are not honoring and serving Him and loving Him with our heart and soul and mind and strength. We're not. Not any day do we ever do that. We commit sin in our hearts continually. That is, again, offending God because we we do not live according to His perfect standard. We do not commit all the sin that we could, but everything we do is tainted with sin. There's nothing we do that's free from it. And so that's a huge problem because if God is just and holy, then He cannot have a relationship with us in that condition. It's impossible. Not that that it would be nice if He could or maybe He will. It's impossible. Because He is God, He can accept nothing that is not perfect in His presence. But He's also loving, right? So He made a way in which sinful men separated from Him for eternity with no ability to do what is good on their own, unable completely to even contemplate or pursue God, dead in their trespasses and sins, He made a way to save them by sending His Son, God, man, Jesus. And He sent His Son, perfectly God, perfectly man, to be incarnate, to to be born of a virgin, to walk on this earth, to be perfect, then to go to the cross, to die in our place, to take the penalty for our sin, to take the wrath of God. Remember, if God is holy and just, He hates sin. And so his wrath against sin, which brings about our death inevitably in eternal hell, he sent his son to take that very wrath and to die the death that we should have died so that if we believe in him, we will be saved. A perfect man, perfectly God, living a perfect life and dying a perfect death on our behalf. He took upon himself our sins so that if we trust in him, we might partake of his righteousness and that comes to the last thing god and man and jesus and response what's the response we have to repent we have to recognize our sin we have to agree with god that we deserve eternal hell which he says we does says we do and not make excuses Someone else is worse than I am. I'm not as bad as so and so. I don't deserve hell. One sin deserves hell because God is perfectly just. And not one of you commits only one sin, not one of us. We commit multiple ones. Our hearts are sinful. We deserve eternal hell. We need to agree with God about that, that our sin is heinous, that it is the thing that drove his son to the cross, that he hates it. And then desire to, to turn from that, to say, I want to turn away from that, I hate that, and I want to trust in you. So repenting of sin, recognizing our penalty, recognizing our true sinfulness, agreeing with God that we deserve that, and then turning to whom? The one who made provision, Jesus. And putting our trust in Him, having faith in Him, which means what? That with our mind we acknowledge He saved us. It is the only means by which we can be saved, and no payment for sin will suffice except His, but with our wills to 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 give our will to Him, to say, I yield my will so that you might take control of my life. You are the one who rules and reigns. I will follow you. And with our affections to turn them from a love of ourselves to a love of Him. That's faith, mind, and will, and affection given over to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we bend the knee. And we say, you're my Lord and my Savior, and I can only have And we do that's internal. There's no act that you do. There's no work that you do to get that. It's repenting and believing, and it's in our heart. And when we do that, it is an indication of the work of God, and we are saved. He transforms us. We have been changed. We have been renewed, and forever then, He places us in His family, adopts us into His, the very family of God, and then brings us ultimately to eternal life, because that's the gospel. And it doesn't take a lot of time to talk about it. God and man and sin and Jesus, and faith, and, and repentance. And you can you can say it relatively quickly and relatively clearly, and that is what God uses. Each one of those points you can go into a lot more depth, right? You could speak more of them and bring out many more Bible verses and those other things, but you guys, that is sufficient, and you need to learn to do that over and over and over. Come to our evangelism implosion that Mark is leading and and, and, and gain practice in that. Come to our weeks when we do that here at the church and, and, and pour out a whole week doing that because learn how to do it so that you might go from there and have the opportunity to share the gospel with a coworker or with someone, first with your life. We'll talk about that next week, actually, the making the most of our time and, and making the most of our words, but, has, but also by verbally telling them. You can, say that in, you can say what I just said in 30 seconds. You can say it in a minute. You can say it in five. You can say it in five hours. It can be said and should be said. Just practice it over and over so that it just flows from you and you can quickly move to speaking those things so that we might be as the Apostle Paul, that we might have opportunities, that we might have clarity, and that we might have correctness in our speaking of the gospel. Just pray for one another. Pray in general. Pray all the time. Pray passionately and devotedly, alertedly and thanksgivingly. And then pray for opportunities. The the subject of this prayer is that there would be opportunities for the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time. Thank you for the privilege of, of knowing your word and, and of knowing that you hear us when we pray. And that we, as we come to you, that we can be convinced, we can know that you, you are a God who longs to hear us and that we would be involved in the work that you are doing here in our families, around the world, that these young people would be emboldened and empowered to join your work first with prayer and then in their actions and words or give them strength even tonight to, to respond to you. And Father, for those, those here that having heard that gospel message perhaps a hundred times, perhaps tonight they would recognize that their life is not reflected in their relationships, that a love of you is not reflected in their prayer, and that they would bend the knee tonight. In your precious name, amen.